Please join me now in 1 Peter. And we now cross into chapter 4 today. We began months ago walking through these texts. And you remember, Peter's writing to men and women that he regards as elect exiles on the earth. And we have found these words to be so practical and helpful to us as we understand in this generation, we are the chosen people of God through our faith in Jesus for this generation. And the question we've been pondering is how do we live in this exile? In fact, how do we thrive in this exile when the vast majority of people around you do not love or live for Jesus? When your biblical values are not the dominant values of the age? When you're committed to the truth in an age that no longer believes in the concept of truth. So here we are as a local church and we say that we are rooted in the truth and reaching in love in a culture that says, what is truth? And you have your truth and I have my truth. How do you live in a confused, lost age like this? And the scripture is so helpful to us. And so let's go right back into 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's start with the first two verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Once again, Peter points to Jesus as the ultimate example of how to navigate this exile life, this exile mission that we have. And the first thing we notice here is this, that to thrive in exile, we are to think like Jesus, being fully devoted to the will of God. Think like Jesus, being fully devoted to the will of the God. Notice verse one here. He tells us to arm ourselves with Jesus's way of thinking. And as we consider how Jesus thought, we know he was fully devoted to the will of God. So it was the father's plan that Jesus would leave his throne in heaven and come to this earth. It was the father's plan that Jesus would humble himself and take on humanity in addition to his deity. It was the father's plan that Jesus would come and endure all that came with being completely righteous in an unrighteous world. In fact, it was the father's plan that Jesus would suffer and die on a cross at the hands of corrupt evil men in order to bring us to the Lord. Indeed, as Peter says here, Jesus suffered in the flesh. That was his mission, to take on a body of flesh and blood that he might in due time give that body of flesh and blood in payment for all of our sins. And so let's just pause here. We're talking about taking up the thinking of Jesus and what devotion we see in the, in the mind of Jesus, what love we see there. And that is to be us as we take up that mindset as elect exiles on the earth. Notice here, he says, you need to arm yourselves. And that wording is correct here. The original language carries the idea of taking up a weapon or taking up arms. Here's an acknowledgement that we live in the midst of spiritual hostilities, don't we? That there is a fierce battle for our minds. And if you're a parent or grandparent, there is a fierce battle for your child's mind or your grandchildren's minds. And so we look at the day in which we live and we see Satan actually seems to have all the tools on his side presently to try to control and shift the thinking of the entire world. So we look around and we see most schools, most universities, most newsrooms, most social media companies, and the producers of most of our entertainment seem to be parroting the same godless antichrist message. 
And so for the present time, we look and see that's a lot of hostility coming inbound. So how do we live? How do we thrive in an exile like this? Well, we're to arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ. So how do you do that? How do you arm your mind with the thoughts of Christ? What kind of ammunition have we been given here? It's been about a year ago now, a little longer than a year ago, Ken Delano, who's since gone on to be with the Lord, uh, he took me out to teach me how to shoot a shotgun. I'd shot a shotgun a couple times in my life, but still a complete novice. And so it, the point I'm making is he did everything to teach me. It was his land he took me to. It was his shotgun, his shells, and his expertise. He's a, he was a certified firearms instructor. He was a police officer, SWAT team member. So I was in great hands as he took me out there how to, how to handle it, how to load it. And, and I got to say my words carefully here because I said it wrong in the last service. This, you'll enjoy this. So that I might somewhat, that's the key word, somewhat accurately <laughs> fire this weapon. I said it at 930. It sounded like I said to shoot someone accurately. <laughs> I said, I don't think I said that. I didn't mean to anyway. Uh, so that I might somewhat accurately shoot at a target, <laughs> the targets that Ken provided. But so again, we're not talking about physical weapons here. We're arming our minds, right? Did you catch that in the text? We're, we're, we want to arm ourselves with the thinking, the mindset of Christ that we might thrive in this exile. Now, how have we been loaded up? What ammunition have we been given? Oh, we have everything we need. We have the word of God. So if we're going to think like Jesus, fully devoted to the will of God, we must embrace the word of God. How will you possibly know the mindset of Jesus and the will of God if you don't have a devotion to the word of God? We, we're not winging it, making it up. Or I wonder, I think Jesus might be for this. We have the scriptures where we know that. And so, so critical for us to think like Jesus, we must think biblically. But not only do we have the word of God, we have the Holy Spirit. The one that Peter called in chapter 1, verse 11, the spirit of Christ and he lives in us. The same one who inspired these scriptures, he lives in us and he is conforming us as we cooperate with him to the image of Christ. So like Jesus, we're to live each day with a commitment to choose the will of God over the sinful rebellion of men. Now here's a question. What does it mean when he says here, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? It sounds like that if I go through any kind of suffering, then I'll no longer sin again. And we know that can't be what Peter's talking about here. Now it is true. You ever been so sick? Maybe you had the flu so bad that nothing interested you. You thought there's no way I can get in any trouble today. I'm not interested in any sin, anything. I just want to go to heaven today because of my suffering. So there's a point in which that might be a bit true, but we know this in our foolish hearts, we can suffer and want to turn on God in our suffering, right? We could be like Job's wife who infamously told Job when he suffered, Hey, Job, you should just curse God and die. You could do that. You could think, God, if you're going to deal, deal with me this way, then I have no use for you. I'm bolting from you. So it is possible, even when you're suffering, to, to go after sin. But so what, what's Peter talking about here when he says, if you're suffered, you're, you've ceased from sin. He appears to be talking about this. You have such a devotion to the will of God. You have such a devotion to Christ that you've already counted the cost. You're willing to suffer for Christ. And when you suffer for Christ, you say, I just knew that. I knew this is part of the deal. This could come. Then you've turned your back on that old life of sin. Like, I, it doesn't matter what they do to me. I don't like it, but I, I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. Then you've set yourself in a direction. You've ceased from a lifestyle of sin in the past. So let me ask you, is your mind armed like that? Do you think like Jesus with this absolute devotion 
to the will of God. Is this your mindset now? Could you say these phrases and they mean something to you? Jesus is worthy of my full allegiance. Could you say this and mean it? God's will is more important to me than my comfort. Could you say this? I have committed my life to his will, even when it involves suffering for him. Or how about this? The rest of my life is for the will of God. We're to arm our minds like that. That's the mindset of Jesus. If we're not careful, we will put limitations on our following Christ. We'll only obey him so far. So a person might say this instead of full devotion. They might say, Lord, I'll follow you so long as there's no cost involved. Or I will follow you so far as the world is still applauding me. When I start following you to the point where they stop clapping and they stop affirming me, then I'll stop obeying you at that point. Or I will follow you unless something better comes along. We can't be those. That's not the mindset of Christ at all. No, we have made our decision. I will worship Jesus even if nobody else worships with me. I will follow my master no matter what the threat. I will follow Jesus no matter what the cost. That's the mindset we are to arm ourselves with if we are going to thrive in this exile that we are in. So how do we live as exiles here? Think like Jesus, fully devoted to the will of God. Secondly, think like Jesus, turning away from sin. Think like Jesus, turning away from sin. Back into verse one here, the latter part of that verse. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, verse three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So when you, like Christ, are committed to full obedience to him, you're done with a life of sin. And we see this in Jesus. We see him always turning toward God the Father in full obedience. And when sin came upon a temptation, we see him always turning away from that opportunity to sin. You remember, but most notably in Luke chapter 4, we read about those temptations that Satan brought to Jesus. And every one of those temptations was essentially to get Jesus to do anything but the will of the Father. And Jesus turned away from that temptation and the second one and the third one, because he was there determined to follow after the father, turning away from sin. And so likewise for us, sin has no place in our lives as we walk with Jesus. The mission we've been called to on this earth, sin is totally incompatible with that that he has given to us. So as his followers, we no longer follow what Peter calls here our human passion. Now, to be clear, we still have those human passions, don't we? We still have these desires, but we don't live for them anymore like we once did. Those human passions that we contend with, we want to subjugate to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We don't walk in sin anymore. Now, what is sin? If we were to define it this way or boil it down, isn't sin really the opposite of doing the will of God? If we're fully devoted to the will of God, Father, what do you want me to do? Sin will never enter into that picture. I have to move away from sin. I love it here. Peter brings up time in this context. Notice verse two, we'll see it again in verse three, the concept of time here. So as to live for the rest of the time in this flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter's saying this, that now that you've come to Christ, as you think about the rest of your life ahead, 
present and future tense, it's all for the will of God. It's no longer for sin. It's all now for the rest of my life, I'm going to follow the Lord. Let me ask you, have you made that decision? That every day you have and every day you might have ahead will be lived for Jesus? Are you there? This is what it means that Jesus is your Lord. He is now in full control in every moment you desire to put under the Lordship of Jesus. This is why when we baptize people here, we typically ask two questions up there to give them the opportunity to give a testimony to this. We ask, first of all, usually this, have you put your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation? We wanna make sure they're not trusting the water or some work they've done, that they're trusting Jesus alone for salvation. Isn't it beautiful when we hear them say, yes, I have. And then we ask a second question, typically, do you intend to follow Jesus for the rest of your life? And we love to hear those words. Yes, yes. That's a statement of Jesus is Lord. I will follow him. It's, it's the mindset we see in Jesus. I'm all about the father's will and I'm turning away from the old life. So there's a statement of the future here, but there's also a statement about the past Peter gives us back in verse three. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, I'm done with the way I used to live when I was an unbelieving pagan. Now, you know my story. I was saved in high school. But even in those years, those 16 years before I became a believer, I have a lot of regret in those 16 years. And for some people, that, that's pretty early to come to Christ. But a lot of sin there, a lot of things I wish had never happened in there, a lot of things that I did I should not have done, and a lot of regret there. And so I would say, along with Peter, yeah, that was enough. That was more than enough to spend those years in rebellion against Christ who loved me so well, one of the things I get to do as a pastor is meet with people who've made new decisions for Christ, and it's wonderful. And uh, some of those people who come to faith in Christ, thankfully, are adults. Sometimes it's a senior adult. They're brand new, born again as a senior adult. It's wonderful. And as it reminds us, God keeps saving people anywhere along the line. He can save anybody anytime. But when you meet with a new believer who's come to Christ as an adult or even a senior adult, they're full of regret. And to hear them express is quite touching for me. They, they'll say things like, I just wish I had come to Jesus when I was a child or when I was a teenager. I, I just have so many regrets. This one's a tough one to hear too. When someone will tell you, oh, I raised my children. My, my children are now grown. My, I have grandchildren on the scene, but I raised my children to be agnostics. I taught my children. They don't need a church. They don't need God. They don't need any of this. And now I see I was wrong. Now I have Jesus and my life has been changed. And all I want for my grown children and my grandchildren is that they would know Jesus. And there's that regret there. There's that remorse. And of course, I say to them what you would say to them. All that sin is all covered by the blood of Jesus. That all that regret, it's real, but there's no guilt for that. Jesus died for that. He's forgiven you there. And then we can just join in together. Well, let's pray for your grown children that they'll see this change that's happened in your life and that they'll want to see. I want this Jesus that, that we never knew about now, but I'm seeing him in your life, all oh, the grace of God. But we're just making the point here. We, we want to be armed with the mindset of Jesus, fully devoted now to the will of God, turning away from all that sin of our past. Enough time was wasted in the emptiness and dysfunction of our lives in the past. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's no time for sin anymore. 
sin would be completely incompatible with who we are now in Christ. I, I do want to get you to go back and look at verse 3 again. And I agree with you, it's an ugly list. I agree with you, it's a bit shocking. You might think, am I supposed to hear these words on a Sunday morning? But I want you to intentionally look at this because I want you to examine yourself. Verse 3 again. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Shocking words. But here's another reminder to us that our generation did not invent sin. This is the first century. And these are the things that the pagans were going into, the unbelievers. These are the same things that unbelievers are going to in our generation. These are the same things you and I were chasing after before we came to Christ. And so this has been around a long time, this problem in the human heart. And we have no part in that any longer now that the Lord has brought us to himself. Peter starts this list with the word sensuality. And that word in the original language carries the idea of sexual excess, absence of restraint, an insatiable desire for pleasure. Isn't that our generation? Isn't, wasn't that you before you came to Christ? And so to the pagan unbeliever, the mindset was my pleasure, my comfort is my highest goal in life. And anything that interferes with my quest for pleasure has to go. But now enter into Jesus and the cleansing and the grace of God, this new birth. Now it's completely opposite. Now my highest goal is to please the Lord. It's the will of God's my highest goal. And anything that interferes with that goal has to go out of my life. And so again, you're looking at verse 3. Is any of that still in your life, believer? You look at that list. It's an ugly list. And maybe you've been rationalizing some of this. You're still living somewhat like you once did. And today, I want you to see from the scripture, no more. The time in the past was sufficient for all that. Not anymore. You've been called to a new walk. And so if that's you this morning, you need to confess to the Lord. And you know this, to confess does not mean to inform God of something he doesn't know. God already knows everything you've ever done. He, he knows the things you've forgotten that you did. And so God already knows. But when you confess, it means you agree with God now. He already knows that you're saying, God, I know now I was wrong. I am being wrong. And I'm asking your forgiveness. And listen, he's so merciful to you. He would forgive you. Listen to this promise. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, receive the cleansing that Jesus offers to his children. So we're just talking about how do I thrive in an exile? Well, I want to think like Jesus, fully devoted to the will of God. I want to think like Jesus, turning away from sin. And then this, I want to think like Jesus, undeterred by ridicule and rejection. I want to think like Jesus, being undeterred by ridicule and rejection. This takes us back to verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So here we are in 11 o'clock service and we came because we love Jesus. We're so thankful that he saved us. He brought us out of darkness. He brought us into light. We know he's made our lives better as we've left some things behind us. He did that work inside of us to change us. And so we're celebrating that. But we know when we came to Christ, not everybody in our lives was celebrating. There are people who looked at you when, when Jesus started changing you from the inside out. They started observing the changes. They were surprised, as Peter said. And some of them did not like the new you. They began to malign you. They had disdain for this new you. So maybe you remember back in those days 
the things that the Holy Spirit put his finger on, that this needs to go from you. Maybe it was you had to stop watching the videos you used to watch with all your friends. And you just, when you tried that again, the Holy Spirit was making you very uncomfortable. This has to go. I have to, I have to leave that behind. And your friends thought, that's, that's strange. Maybe you had to stop going to the same bars you used to go to. Maybe you, maybe you had to stop the way you talk, that profanity, the Holy Spirit put his finger on that. That's got to go. Those crude jokes you were telling with your friends. I can't, I can't do that, guys. I can't do that with you anymore. Maybe you had to end a dating relationship that was inappropriate and, and you couldn't repent together so that this just has to go now. Of course, simultaneously, those things that the Holy Spirit was prompting you to drop, he was bringing new things into your life. You became, you became more generous. You started praying for the first time in your life in a meaningful way. You started forgiving other people for slights that they had against you. You, you started wanting to restrain your anger. But all those beautiful changes that were in the works, listen, it, it caused you to experience a hard time at the hands of other people. They, they were surprised and they maligned you for it. It's interesting here in the original language here, blasphemeo is the word that's used for malign. We hear our word blaspheme there. And so that word means this, to speak against someone in such a way as to harm or injure his or her reputation, to refile, to revile, to defame. And so when used against God, when you speak against God like that, we, we rightly bring that in English as blaspheme. But that very same word when directed to us, we would say, well, they're not blaspheming me, but they are maligning me. They are trying to injure me. But why do they want to malign, malign you? Because you won't run with them, catch this word, in debauchery. What's debauchery? That's not a word we use very often. The word means senseless deeds, reckless deeds, or a recklessness. When I was in high school, in those months before I became a Christian, and certainly in the months after I became a Christian, I used to watch my friends, and I was a bit curious with them, and uh, especially on Monday mornings. My buddies would come back from a weekend of partying and drinking, and they would brag about how drunk they got every Monday. And this is how they would brag about it. They would brag about how many times they threw up. They like kind of outdo each other. I threw up this many times. And I remember thinking, you know, even in those months before getting saved and those months afterwards, I'm thinking, this, this, is, this is crazy. You're, you're bragging about that. I didn't know the word debauchery, but that's it. <laughs> that's senseless. That's, that's reckless. I think I would have said in those days, stupid. Uh, I didn't know the word sinful. That's sinful. It's certainly contrary to the will of God. And so Peter says they turn on you because you won't run with them into their recklessness. The same recklessness you used to be a part of yourself. So sinners will slander you when you won't sin with them. And we know sinners will also slander you when you won't, you won't approve of their sin. And part of this, though, will lead to some suffering. So remember, the context of 1 Peter is all this suffering that elect exiles might experience on the earth at the hands of sinful men and women. And so part of that suffering is, I think, loneliness. So when you come to Christ, you're full of joy. You want all your friends to come with you, but sometimes they don't. And you feel like you're kind of out on an island all by yourself. I wanted them to understand and join in, but they're actually now retreating from me. They don't want to hang with me anymore. They're thinking I'm not as fun as I used to be. They're surprised by the change and they're disdaining me. And so we want to understand that. And what we say is this, we know that's part of the cost. And though we'd rather all of our friends come with us to Christ, we say this, I'd rather have Christ and his love than the so-called love of these so-called friends if they're going to treat me like that. I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather suffer for Christ than live the reckless life I used to live apart from Christ. 
I would rather enjoy the confidence and peace of intimacy with Jesus Christ than to add more regrets to my life by going back to the old way that I used to live with my old friends. So, so we want to think like Jesus, being fully devoted to the will of God. We want to think like Jesus, turning away from sin. We want to think like Jesus, undeterred by ridicule and rejection. And then finally this, we want to think like Jesus, considering the judgment to come. Notice verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So we understand that those who right now ridicule and reject will soon face the judgment of God. And because that's true, don't fear them. Certainly don't follow them. Very soon, those who are living in sin and persecuting those who are following Christ, they will give an account. Did you see it? They'll give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter, once again, as he helps us to walk successfully in this exile life, he lifts our eyes up to an eternal perspective. Right now you look and all the levers of power are in the hands of the godless and it just looks like unrighteousness is winning the day. He says, hold on, look up, look to the future. There's a judgment coming. And though you might suffer right now, people might malign you. They might cancel you. At some point in the near future, they might fine you. In some parts of the world, imprison you, martyr you. But that's not how this all ends. Jesus is coming. And a great day of judgment is coming. He will save his people, but those who have rejected him will have to give an account. Notice verse six again, this is interesting. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. It seems that Peter here is saying that, that those who are now dead, like us, were preached to while they were alive that they might come to Jesus and though judged by men, now rewarded by the Lord, now alive with him forevermore. No regrets for the believer in the Lord, but we're just considering Jesus here, having his mindset, even as we think about the judgment to come. And so notice this with me, Jesus was never intimidated by people judging him because he knew he was the ultimate judge. So Jesus was never cowering in fear before the Pharisees when they were constantly opposing him. Neither was Jesus cowering in fear before the Roman governor Pilate. When Jesus had encounters with Satan himself or any of the demons, Jesus was never fearful because Jesus knew in, dear, in, in due time, all of them would be bowing down at his feet at the judgment. So let me ask you this. Who are you afraid of? Who is intimidating you? Maybe this would be helpful to you to picture them at the final judgment if they won't repent and trust in Jesus and we long for them to do so. But if they don't, picture them at the final judgment and just see what it will be like for them in that day. That arrogance and pride that they express against you in these days, that all will be gone and be replaced with dread and regret. That bullying tongue that they use to malign you, that will be silenced at the judgment as they stand before Christ they will no longer be doing that, but they'll be crying out for mercy from Jesus. But on that day, it will be too late. They rejected the Jesus they saw in you that you offered to them. And if they won't repent on that day, all their pleas for mercy, too late. They missed their opportunity. 
you know the one who will one day humble them. So you want to live successfully as an exile, think like Jesus, being clear on the judgment to come. Keep it clear in your mind. Here's something very practical you can do to help with this. I did this this weekend. As I reread Revelation chapter 6, and I reread Revelation 20, and you read in Revelation 6 about those early moments of judgment, and you see how the people are wanting to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. They're wanting the mountains to cover them up so they don't have to deal with the Lamb. That's, that's how awesome that day of judgment will be. But then the final judgment at the great white throne, you read about that in Revelation 20, and, and really it says nobody's able to stand in the presence of Christ. How awesome and fearful will that day be for all who have rejected Christ? And it says, in fact, their part, if your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, your place will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. This part of us thinking this through, these are, these are strong realities, but we have to have this eternal view. I'm not going to fear those who are destined for judgment. I certainly won't follow those who are destined to judgment. And so I want to follow after Christ only. Can I give you this word of invitation as well? You might be here today and you haven't known Jesus. You've been living in sin, rejecting him. I want to tell you today, you can come to know the judge because the judge is also the savior. You don't have to fear that judgment at the end if you get to know Jesus now. That's why Jesus came. He died on a cross for your sins. He was raised from the dead and he makes the offer. If you'll believe in him, you'll not perish at judgment, but you'll have everlasting Life, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's what he's offering to you. That's what we as a church family are offering to you. This good news that though you've sinned much, like I have sinned much, there is a savior who died for all that sin on the cross and will wash you whiter than snow. But you have to confess, tell him I've been wrong. I need you, Jesus, and only you to wash me clean because you died for me and you were raised from the dead. Oh, come to know the judge now. And that way you have no fear of the future. Don't you love Romans 8.1? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, come to Christ. And then as you trust in him, what do you do? Arm yourself with the mind of Christ, being fully devoted to the will of God, turning away from sin, being undeterred by ridicule and rejection, and considering this judgment to come. Pray with me.